0: It's been a while since we've been together, and um, we were in the middle. So I thought I'd just start for the first just few minutes and get us back in the space to review what we've been talking about the last few weeks uh, before I was absent. So we started talking about the the desire we have for respect and for acknowledgement and to be seen. That's how we have to be seen. And the pain we experience when we feel that in some way we're not being seen or we're not being acknowledged or we're not being respected. We talked about how the first step in some ways is really the willingness to recognize the pain. To not run away from it or not to think, oh, I'm above that and that doesn't hurt me or I don't feel that. But just being to recognize the ways that we hurt from those experiences. And then also at the same time to recognize the pain we experience and the damage we do to ourselves by um, neurotically seeking those experiences, by sort of demanding to be seen, by demanding to be acknowledged, by demanding to be respected. And the way we seek it out kind of desperately sometimes in our lives and the pain that that causes us. And then we talked a little bit about how the first step of our healing is recognizing that we're never ever going to get what we want. We're never going to be seen or respected or loved or acknowledged in the way we want to be. Not that we won't be seen and respected and loved and acknowledged. We will be in the normal human way that you can be. But in the total complete way that we want to be, that's gonna make everything okay and everything better and we're gonna be completely held and completely protected, it's just never gonna happen. It's just not a fact of human life. It just won't happen. And there's a kind of a cold shower and a, a bit of a shock in recognizing that, but there's also some freedom there. There's the freedom of the beginning of the ability to start to step off that treadmill, that race, that pursuit of those qualities. And then we talked for a longer time about the way that, though we can never get that fully from others, we can get it from ourselves, and we can get it from God. That we can see ourselves, and we can be seen by the divine at every moment. We can be loved, and we can be acknowledged. And we can be held. And part of that, as I told that story from the seventh telling, is about making God our partner. Making God our partner. Having someone there who we know is is available with us to lean on, to call out, to, to be seen by, to recognize our pain and our struggle. To recognize that it's not going to go away. But that we can be held by that force that's greater than us. So that's sort of what we've done so far. It's a lot to do so far. And now I want to continue to talk about uh, this, really, this work, this path of, of being seen and of healing from the need, sort of that, that tight and tense need to be seen in two ways. And the first part is that to see ourselves, to do this work of seeing ourselves truly, of being willing to really see ourselves, to acknowledge ourselves, to accept ourselves. It takes two fundamental components which are actually fundamentally connected. And they're telling the truth and letting go of shame. Telling the truth and letting go of shame. Like the story, people remember that story about taking on the partner, you know, Stacy, the girl who's addicted to drugs. It's hard whether telling the truth, saying, I'm an addict, right? Or the guy, the bartender, saying, I have a temper, I want to punch that guy out. Because we just can't see ourselves if we're not willing to tell the truth. We can't do it without the truth. We just can't do it without the truth. And we aren't willing to see the truth When the barrier of shame surrounds what it is that we want to see. While we feel that the mistakes we've made are somehow fundamentally wrong or unacceptable or shameful. Instead of just recognizing that they're what they are, which is mistakes, pain, suffering, maybe pain we've caused. It's not about us being, you know, all light and fairy and we've never done anything wrong, we've never hurt anybody. It's about recognizing it deeply and really without making that somehow about the essence of who we are. That's between shame and regret or recognizing you've done something wrong, right? It's not who you are. Something that's happened and you're responsible for it, took total responsibility, but it's not your identity. It's not yourself. The callous Rebbe said to his Hasidim that he wanted each of them to have a confidant through which they would share with every day what was happening in their spiritual lives. And he said, very interesting, he said, it has to be somebody that you share with and that you will feel no shame before. And so you can share everything and rebuke each other. It's so important, that feeling of It's precisely because you don't feel shame before the person, because you can admit everything, that you can also accept criticism. They can say, and it isn't an attack on you. Because it isn't about shame, it isn't about a fundamental mistake within yourself. You can just imagine how liberating would it be to share the most shameful parts of yourself. Just share the most shameful parts of yourself, whatever those are, right? Parts you most wanna hide, you never ever want anybody to see. To share them completely wholly and to have them totally held and accepted. And the amazing thing is that you can. You can with yourself right now. Even if you don't feel like you know somebody else you can do that with, you can share them totally with yourself. Not in a place of judgment and condemnation, right? But in a place of just compassionate truth of, oh right, that's part of what's in me. And you know what? That's part of what it means to be human. It's part of what's in all of us. Anybody who does this practice for any extended periods of time will see those parts of themselves. It's okay. It's in me. (laughs) Let me tell you a lot of shameful things. Anger, violence, control, hatred. It's all there. It's all in me. I've seen it. It's part of what it is to be human. Human beings don't escape that. And it's okay. But if we can see it truthfully, if we can see it without the shameful condemnation of who we are, then we can heal. Rabbi Eli Melech of Lijansk said, I'm sure to have a share in the world to come. I'm definitely going to get Olam Haba. Because when I stand before the Beit Din." The mala, the heavenly court, they're going to ask me, have you studied all you should have? And I'll say, no. And they'll say, have you prayed all you should have? And I'll say, no. And they'll say, have you done all the good deeds you should have? And I'll say, no. And then they'll say, you told the truth. For the sake of truth, you deserve a share in the world to come. There's something very powerful and deep about that story, which is we're really redeemed just through truth. We don't have to be perfect. I mean, you won't be perfect. Trust me. (laughs) No matter how much you work at it, no matter how much you do, you definitely won't be perfect. But we can be redeemed just through truth. And if there's some part of us, I know some part of me still, which just doesn't fully believe that, It's like, no, if I want to be seen, if I want to be respected, if I want to be acknowledged, if I want to be held, if I want to be loved, i got to get it right somehow. I have to be perfect. I have to be right. I have to make it happen. It's a kind of sickness, a poison in ourselves. It's okay. But it's not true. It's not true. We just need to be our full selves. We just need to tell the truth. It says, I, I just noticed it was so beautiful, a few parashiyots ago. Now, when I wrote it down, it was just last week's portion <laughs> It said, <laughs> <laughs> It's a very confusing verse, uh, and the parshanim don't really know exactly what it means. JBS translates it as, and the confusing words are *mleatcha* <laughs> and JPS translates it as "You shall not put off the skimming of the first yield of your vats," and then it has one of those little notes, you know, meaning of Hebrew uncertain. Right? <laughs> 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 and um, you know, and the and the Parshanim all oh, they all agree it, it seems to refer to some kind of agricultural production, right? There's some kind of production which you shouldn't delay giving to God, right? You should bring it right. And then it says right? You're sort of the first fruits of your children or of the you know the children of your animals etc you should give to me right so you should be offering up your bicharim as we know in, in the Torah but the pshat of it I mean the sort of the most simple pshat of it is absolutely beautiful what it says is your fullness V'dim achha, your tears right L'otah don't delay them don't hold them back just don't hold back your fullness. Your tears, don't delay them. Don't say, oh, this isn't the time. Right? This isn't the time. This isn't the right time for me to cry. But you could let your fullness be present right now. Right now. And it's interesting. It says, B'chor banecha titeni. And my initial reading of it, I was like, oh, that's interesting. First it says, hold back your fullness. Then it's like, Oh, your b'chor, which of course the b'chor is traditionally like the best of you, you know, also give the best of you. And and I think in some ways that's right. You should give also the best of you, your joy, your compassion, your wisdom. It's beautiful to give all of that. But then I started thinking about b'chorim, the Tanakh. Firstborns. Let's go through the list of firstborns. Ishmael. Esau. The first three born of Yaakov are Ruvain, Shimon, and Levi. Ruvain slept with Bilhah, as you may recall, right? his father's concubine. That's the most important thing we sort of know about him, not the, best, uh, not the best act. Shimon and Levi, of course, are cursed by Yaakov because they go and kill all of Shechem. Right? So really, the firstborn, and certainly in rabbinic literature, are symbols of unrestrained desire and anger. Very interesting, right? The firstborn represent actually violence and desire, and desire that's out of control. They're hunters and warriors and killers. And that's the firstborn. That's also what we have to give to God, to not hold back the violence that's inside of us, the desire that's inside of us. The anger, the hatred. Don't hold any of it back. Let it be, let it come, tell the truth, and give it to God. To do this, we have to just really tell the truth. So the Pizetzner, my Rebbe, the H. Kodesh, says, You know, if you really want to do tshuva, you have to really recognize where you are. You have to recognize the position of where you are. Really recognize your faults. And he says, you can't recognize it intellectually, like you recognize the faults of another, like, oh, they're doing that and that and that. You have to really feel, really feel the pain of where you are, and really feel the places you're lacking. And then he says something I think fascinating. He says, because if you do it intellectually, if you see your fault intellectually, then you feel despair. Then you just see yourself and you feel despair. Like, I can't improve, I can't transform, I can't be anything else. But when you really feel the pain and feel it fully with your whole body, then you also feel a kind of joy in the recognition that I can rise, and I can transform, with God's help. It was so interesting to me when I read that, because I think it's so true. When we're willing to recognize all of those difficult places, all our faults, all our difficulties, genuinely feel them, embody them, feel them in our gut, in our heart, and everywhere, there's actually a kind of liberation there. There's an openness, which is like, oh, This is really true. This is really here. I recognize it. I need to work on it. And you know what? I can. There's space here. There's openness. There's place to go and grow and change. I'm not trapped in this place that I am. And I'm not a terrible, disgusting person for being in that place. I'm just a normal human being, which has all the same kinds of problems and challenges other normal human beings have. And when I really touch it, there's an open space. There's an open space to make that work happen. and I think that's the difference between seeing it intellectually and feeling it when we see it intellectually it's just judgment and it starts to become who we are but when we feel it experientially we know it's just one moment manifesting in this series of movements we call the self it's just a moment manifesting within us we don't have to own it as if it defines who we are Indeed, it's when we start to let go of that sense of identification, which is the same thing as that sense of shame, right? You can't have shame without identifying with it. Shame means that you think it's you in some deep way. You think it's true of you in some deep way. When you let go of that identification, then there's space, which means you can actually feel the fullness of the suffering. It's interesting, that Eshkotar says elsewhere, there's a famous Midrash about Raviyosi who... Um, entered the ruins of the Beit HaMikdash, right? entered the, the ruins of Jerusalem, and he hears this voice calling out, the voice of God who calls out every day, a Baal call saying, woe to me who's destroyed my house, woe to the suffering of my children. And what the Eish Kodesh says is, how we actually have to understand that is that Rabbi Yossi had to enter his own Chorban, his own brokenness. He had to be broken apart and broken down. Letting go of that sense of self to have what he calls bitulayesh, self-annihilation. And in that space, then he could hear the suffering of the world. It's like we can't hear it otherwise. It's too painful. It's too much. It's too threatening to who we are. But when we don't have to own it as us, then we can hear. There's all this space to hear the suffering that's really happening out there. And when we do that, our suffering isn't just our suffering. That's part of the key. Ish Kodesh continues, he says it in the Ish Kodesh. When a person weeps and is in pain alone, they may break down from that pain. But when they're weeping with God, they're strengthened. And it's sort of the key, it's like when we cry with that sense of self. And my own experience of that is that when there's ah, sadness, which is despair, and a crying which is tight and wrenched and closed, it's the feeling of you could break apart and you can't handle it. But sometimes we cry and it's so hard, we just break open, you know, you just break open and you're cleansed and you're crying with the world. It's not just you. Maybe you're hugging somebody else. Maybe it's just opening to the suffering that's in the world all around. You're crying with God and you're held by that divine love and presence. And you're totally open and you're vulnerable. And there's kind of no walls at that moment. There's no walls. There's no protection. And at those moments, you feel the pain totally. It's, it's like infinite pain. It's like infinite pain. In Buddhism, they talk about it as, as crying tears that fill the four oceans, you know? We talk about it as feeling the pain of the Shekhinah. That's how the qasidim talk about it. You feel the pain of the Shekhinah. And it's the truth. And it's all of your failings and your fears and your shame and your anger and your sorrow. But at the same time, it doesn't destroy you. It doesn't destroy you and it opens you up. And we're broken open. We're broken apart. we're actually liberated we're liberated in that shattering but it's really really hard it's so easy sometimes it's like funny i i you know i write these talks and i prepare them for myself and i say them now (laughs) and it's like the things i say to myself and do sometimes and then sometimes it's like you're saying it to yourself and it's definitely not happening you know (laughs) it's just not happening you're like But yeah, I know if I just opened, if I just, I've done this before, you know, if I just opened, it's definitely going to feel way better, way better. But your heart isn't ready. Like your heart is not ready. It's not there. It won't open at that moment. And you open as much as you can as you open as much as you can. And that's where you are in your semi-opened heart, (laughs) feeling the pain and, and doing whatever you can to be okay with that pain in that moment. Pinchas of Korets, early Hasidic master, said, I found nothing more difficult to overcome than lying. It took me 14 years, and I served 21 years. Seven years to find out what truth is, seven years to drive out falsehood, and seven years to absorb truth. pretty intense, right? <laughs> 21 years to finally get to truth. But like, it's really that hard, and yet sometimes it's also that easy. It's important to recognize how hard it is, and it's important to recognize that sometimes it just happens, and we just open. We just open, and all of a sudden it's there. It's like it's beautiful it's present, it's sad, it's the pain of the world, our heart is open, and it's right there inside us. And we can just embrace it all. It's the willingness to just really see the truth of our own pain and suffering. But the key is that we don't have to keep doing it to ourselves. Right? So maybe it was done to us at some point. But we're not children anymore. <coughs> we're not children anymore. And we don't have to do it to ourselves. We don't have to drive ourselves or we can be our own parent, right? We can cradle that, cradle that child inside. We can let ourselves know that it's okay. It doesn't matter what we perform. It doesn't matter what we do. We can love each ourselves fully and totally just the way we are. Essentially, we say in the Amida, right? We will not be ashamed because we trust in you. And I've wondered, sort of, what does that mean? How does that trust relate to shame? I think there's a certain sort of shot that you could read that, like, because we trust in you, nothing bad will ever happen to us. Right? So we won't be ashamed. But that's clearly not true. So I'm going to put that out there. Right? It's clearly not true. You can trust in God all you want. Bad things happen to people. It doesn't have any relationship to the amount of faith they have, etc. Right? That's just the fact of human life. People, all kinds of things happen. Car accidents, cancer, persecution, right? It doesn't matter. But I think there's something else that really is true. Because bitachon, trust, is ultimately about seeing that we are fundamentally okay. That is actually what it means to really deeply trust, to really have trust. I have faith, I have trust in this situation. There's a kind of false, I think, faith and trust, which is, this situation is going to turn out okay. Like, whatever I want to happen is going to happen. And in my experience, that's just not the case. That's not how the world works, right? It just doesn't, unfortunately, it doesn't happen that way. I wish it did. But things just don't always turn out the way you want them to turn out. But there's a deeper trust, which is that I'm fundamentally okay, and therefore whatever happens it is going to be okay at a certain level. Not that there won't be sadness, not that there won't be tragedy. It's not about saying the world's okay out there. It's about saying that whatever happens, because I'm fundamentally okay, there's a kind of security and stability which is letting go of security and stability, which we can have within us at any moment. It's this trust and faith of recognizing the fundamental all-rightness of who you are. And in that recognition, there's no shame. Right? When we have that faith in the divine, there's no shame. Because we have that fundamental faith in who we are. There may be mistakes, there may be faults, there may be things that we think are problematic or difficult with ourselves that we want to work on, no problem. But it's not shame. It's not that fundamental sense of we are somehow sick or not okay. So I want to end today with this poem. And next time we're going to go even a step deeper, a step further, really, in this path. I think it's sort of the, the most difficult place of challenge in working with these things. But I want to end with this poem by uh, Naomi Shihab Nye. It's called Kindness. It says, before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans, and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. That it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes, that sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread, only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. We have to see the darkest parts. We need that real honesty because that's where the kindness comes from. You've got to really feel the pain of the world to know it as you're known, to know that sorrow is the deepest thing and then kindness can be that other deepest thing. For when, as as she says, we catch the thread of all sorrow, of that line, by opening to it, by speaking of it, by admitting it, then as she said, it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. When we really touch the sorrow, it's only kindness that makes sense. Because, and this is really our faith, it's love that's the fundamental motivator. Not fear or shame. Underneath all of that, when we open and are willing to be with the fear and the shame, the fear and the shame which are ultimately connected to a certain kind of ignorance or untruth. When we open to that, there's only love that remains. There's only love and kindness. So that's what we'll finish for today. As normal, we'll open it up for questions, thoughts, comments. Started talking about the difference between um, understanding something experientially and intellectually. He um, went in a direction that wasn't expected. I guess you said when you see it intellectually, there's judgment. And then when you see it or feel it experientially, it seems like you were suggesting that you feel it in a way that um, is not ego reinforcing. There's some way in which you see it. Um, it breaks down that uh, uh, the differentiation between us, and other people. I think is what you know. meant. Yeah. Clarify that. Kind of a little confused. Yeah. I'll tell you about an experience in life. So one time, uh, I had a professor I was very close to. I was young. I was in college. Yeah. And his wife was dying of cancer and I had met his wife a few times and, um, I had to talk to him about something and I, uh, uh, called him and I don't know why it was shocked me because it was during the day or something. I don't know. And his wife picked up the phone and I just had no idea what to do. I was just like paralyzed by, you know, not one knowing what to say to somebody who was dying basically. And I basically didn't say anything, and just asked to speak to the professor and spoke to him. And um, I felt terrible about it for years. Like it was something that would come back to me again and again, feeling like just terrible about, feeling like I had this moment to, you know, connect to somebody, show compassion, whatever, say how are you, somebody who I knew was suffering and did die not that long thereafter. Um, and I didn't, you know, I didn't, I messed up, <laughs> you know, i messed the opportunity. And I think the reason it, it held to me so hard was I felt, of course, shame about it. You know, I felt like I had fundamentally failed, I'd done something very cruel, and unkind. And And that was mental judgment, you know, my judgment saying, Wrong, 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 wrong. And there was some point in my practice where instead what happened was I could touch my fear at that moment, right? I was just scared shitless, basically, right? I was just like totally scared of encountering death, (laughs) not knowing what to say, feeling completely out of my depth, you know, being a kid, whatever, whatever it was, you know, I was just totally scared. And when I could feel that fear, you know, when I could really feel the experience of what happened in that moment, then my relationship to it could shift, which was to recognize that really wasn't so nice. (laughs) It wasn't to say like, oh, that was then totally fine what I did. It was like to be like, yeah, that really wasn't so nice, you know. It wasn't nice. Um, I didn't respond nicely. I wasn't kind. I wasn't compassionate. And and that was the truth of what happened. It was painful. It was painful for me. It was probably painful for that person, or maybe not. Maybe she didn't care at all. You know, who knows? And um, And I can learn from it about how to be a little bit braver next time by... Being willing to notice my fear instead of leaping into response, right? And I don't have to feel crushed by it. And I can actually grow from it and do better next time. You know, instead of being from that place of crushed, that sort of crushed, shameful place. I don't have to feel ashamed. It's not that I'm fundamentally bad. I didn't do it because I'm fundamentally bad. I did it because I was unfortunately, a human being who was scared and unskillful and hadn't yet learned enough how to be with my fear and my uncertainty. And so that was how I responded. Um, And that feels to me like the difference. So judgment is the essential? It's a certain kind of judgment. It's not that there is a wise seeing in judgment even now which says, that was not helpful and it would be better if I didn't do that, <laughs> right? Like it's not like there's no judgment there. It's, it's good for me to recognize that that was not helpful. It wasn't the kindest way to respond and it would be better if I could respond more kindly. That's okay. But because it, that judgment comes from that evaluation, let's say comes from genuinely seeing the truth of the situation in my whole self, in my body. It's not a judgment of, I'm a terrible person and feel shame about this, should feel shame about this for the rest of my life, right? It's a judgment of, I can see how that happened. I can see why it happened. I can see the mistake and pain that caused. I can see also how I can do better next time because I can see why and how it happened, right? So I can see like, oh, next time I should probably try to stop and notice the fear and then try to respond from the place of seeing the fear rather than just responding from the place that added the fear. Right? So it's not the loss of evaluation at all, and it's not that the intellect isn't sort of engaged. It's that you've opened to the full experience of it, which is really about feeling what I'd say is the full pain of it. Right, As long as the shame was operating, there was the shame that I was never willing to actually see and to admit myself in my own fear because somehow, maybe, probably for me, that was more threatening. It was like more threatening to be seen as weak or faulty or... You know, why would I be scared or something like that or whatever it was, right? Instead of being willing to actually see, oh, right, really, I was totally scared. And that's why it happened. Suffering. Suffering. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, suffering. <laughs> but I can expl- explicate that more. <laughs> um, <laughs> I started meditating my senior year of college, and um, I hadn't fully recognized it yet at the time, um, but starting in probably about the summer before my senior year of college, I uh, entered clinical depression. I wasn't actually diagnosed until uh, late in that spring. And I, of course, had no idea what the hell, you know. I didn't know what was going on with me. Um, and so I was suffering a lot, <laughs> you know, I was a lot of pain, I had a lot of anxiety. Um, life had lost its luster, it had lost its joy, it had lost its sense of connection, and most importantly, most concretely, uh, it had lost its ability to sleep. Um, <laughs> so I couldn't sleep. It was really hard. I would lie awake at night with my heart and my mind racing, 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 racing. I would fall asleep. I would wake up again in the middle of the night with my heart racing. Um, I would wake up in the morning. So like I was totally anxious. I couldn't sleep. It was terrible. And, um, and I don't remember who... And what i and what i what I was finding was that my sort of Jewish life and my religious life was definitely helpful, and it was like kind of a balm for my pain and davening was sort of a place where I could feel a little bit of wholeness, a little bit of peace um, but it wasn 't curing me it wasn't curing me and um somebody actually I remember i 'm pretty sure who I think it was. So part of probably the, probably the part of the causes of med- for the depression, all of course, of course, and deep causes, and I've mentioned some of them in the meditation talks you know I've given. I've heard a little bit about my psychological life, but I'd also experienced a physical injury. Um, I had injured my arms so that I couldn't um, I couldn't write or type. I had to do everything now by voice for about half of my college career, which was extremely difficult and very challenging. Um, I was experiencing a lot of bodily pain. For a while, I couldn't do things like chop vegetables, open doors, so I was experiencing there was all kinds of pain going on and all the normal things I could do I couldn't do. So, there's all things. so one of the things I was doing for that was I was going to this, to rolfing, which is a very, very intense, extremely painful, deep massage technique, which is to try to release your, um, to release things in your body, which was pretty amazing actually. And he said, we were talking about the sleeping thing and he suggested I try meditation. So I did. I got some tapes by John Kabat-Zinn. And I started meditating for five minutes every night. And uh, it helped me fall asleep. <sighs> it was pretty much that tactless. It helped me fall asleep. And I started with five minutes a night. And then I slowly started increasing it. And then by... I started probably in like January or something. And then by the fall, I was in 45 minutes a day. Um, and then that was in... Uh, Ninety-seven, and I haven't stopped since then. Um, but it was, you know, the. Uh, just say about it is, first, it helped me sleep. <laughs> That's really important. But the most important thing, and what was intensely liberating and made me know that this is something I have to keep doing, was it it fundamentally altered my entire, um, approach to life and to my experience. And the most fundamental thing about it was I stopped running away from my pain and stopped opening up to it. That was the fundamental thing, the fundamental thing. And in particular in that experience was my depression and anxiety. It's like, oh, I can actually open to I can open to this so, so wide. I can open so, so wide that I can be free. And that was amazing. When I mean, the first time I can still remember, actually, concretely. So I've done it, like, bit by bit by bit. But the first time, when I was actually, this was maybe, I don't know, six months later or something like that. And, like, I finally just, like, opened completely. I invited the anxiety in. I invited it and I invited it in. I just kept inviting it in for... 40, you know, however long it was, until like, it was just okay. It was just okay. I could invite it in, I could hold the whole world, and it could be okay. And that taste of liberation was just so sweet. You know, so sweet. The openness, just as wide as the world. The joy of just feeling, still, it's just like the memory of it. You could, like, it just brings joy to my my heart. Just the memory of it, of just that feeling of like, oh right, I can welcome it all in. And there's nothing that's too much. There's nothing that's too much. It's like, I can welcome it all in, and it can be okay in that moment. And then you lose that, (laughs) just so you know. (laughs) like You don't stay with that. You open as wide as the world and then you close down again. Mm-hmm. You know, unfortunately. But then you know it's possible. You know it's possible. And so you, you train and you open again and you open a little more and a little more frequently. And most of all, in my experience, what I'd say is um, I've gone through some really challenging times and I've n- never re entered depression. I've come to the edge, but I've never re entered depression. And, uh, and I think that's completely due to the wisdom I learned from this process, you know. <coughs> so that's it for five minutes. <coughs> Open our eyes and just come back to the room. Thank you, everybody. As always, uh, the class is by donation. Please donate. And uh, uh, there's a retreat coming up in just a month. Um, so, anybody who's able, able to make it, I look forward to seeing you there. Um, there are also still posters over there. So, if you have anywhere else you think, anybody else you think might be interested, or else you want to hang it up, please do so. And I'll see you all next week. Thank you. Thank you.